was doing some research into uh, apologetics. For those of you who are new to, uh, to church life, um, apologetics is the study of defending the faith. Um, and what I chose to, to do in the way I was going about this is not by reading just any good apologetics book, as some of you might have, have read, but rather what I wanted to do was to push myself a little bit and watch some videos by people who are considered celebrity atheists uh, in the world. Um, so you, you might know that there are people called uh, like these celebrity preachers in the world, which is always a very strange concept. But there are also your celebrity atheists in the world. So people uh, like you might have heard of Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, Stephen Fry, Fry Ricky Gervais. I mean, all these different um, people, they approach their opposition to uh, the Christian faith in a different way. Um, and each of them uh, approach it as well with a different level of, uh, of intellect. Um, in particular, I was watching one video uh, that drew my attention a little bit of this guy called Ricky Gervais, uh, who may, some of you might have heard of. Um, Ricky Gervais, he's a comedian from the, uh, from the United Kingdom, best known as being the creator for the UK version of The Office, which some of you might have, uh, might have seen before. Um, Ricky was raised going to church, and in this particular video, what Ricky was doing is he began reading from a children's storybook about Noah's Ark. This wasn't the Bible that he was reading, rather it was a, uh, a children's um, abridged version of, the, uh, of what we see in the Bible uh, in, the, in Noah's Ark. And the whole way through, what Ricky was trying to do is he was trying to dismantle and pick apart the story uh, that we know as Noah's Ark. He was criticizing this children's book and making jokes about it. He was pointing out some of the pictures and some of the words and was poking fun at some of the holes that he was able to see in what was being shared in this children's uh, storybook of Noah's Ark. And throughout this video, what Ricky was essentially doing is he was proselytizing his, uh, his athe atheistic faith in a very religious way, and he was trying to convince people that they shouldn't believe in Christianity because of things like this children's storybook. Now, to his credit, Ricky actually did a very good job in what he was uh, trying to achieve. But this book got me thinking that a lot of people in our world today, they have difficulties and issues with the Bible and with Christian faith based on a lot of things like this. Maybe someone grew up and there was a children's book that they read based on the Bible that didn't quite line up with what they think God should look like. Maybe some people have hang-ups with different views of creation and what that looks like. People have all different sorts of objections to Christianity and faith, but in 1 Corinthians 15, what we see is the Apostle Paul trying to uh, make an argument, and I find it a fairly convincing argument, regarding the resurrection of Jesus. He's almost like a lawyer in 1 Corinthians 15, as he begins to build his case. And the case that he is trying to build is that the Christian faith doesn't hang by any of these secondary matters. Rather, the Christian faith hangs solely on this question. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Did he or did he not? And the reason that this is so important is because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then Christianity should be chucked 
out the window. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, then we really need to pay attention to the teaching of Jesus, the life, death and resurrection of Jesus and everything else that we see throughout Scripture. Now, this morning, we are concluding our 11-week series as we've uh, been going through the Gospel of Mark. And what we're going to be doing is looking at the uh, resurrection that's in this Gospel account and addressing some of the difficulties that we see in this particular uh, resurrection account. So, if you have your Bibles, open up to Mark 6, verses 1 to 8. And it'll be up there on the screen as well. And it says, when the Sabbath was over, so just a reminder, at this point, Jesus has been crucified a few days before on the Friday. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early in the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? We'll just pause there for a a moment. So here you have three women. You have Mary, Mary and Salome, who have set out to take spices to the recently crucified Jesus, who is uh, lying in a tomb. Three women who had been mourning the loss of their friend Jesus, who they had journeyed with over a period of years. They were bringing spices. These spices were likely uh, myrrh and aloe, and they were combined together to make an oil, um, which would be uh, something that would be able to take away some of the unpleasant odours of a uh, decomposing body. Um, But the other thing that this was, was a uh, a sign of uh, worship towards Jesus, because these spices that they were mixing, myrrh and aloe, were very very uh, expensive. These women, they had set out to Jesus' tomb, um, but one of the things that we might forget is that on their way to see Jesus, there was still the possibility that this was a very dangerous journey for them to make. There were people out during this time uh, who had a real issue with Jesus, Jesus obviously because they crucified Him, Um, they had issue because He uh, proclaimed Himself to be Messiah and Lord, and so that anyone who followed Jesus and associated themselves with Jesus was also placed in a uh, fairly difficult space. And so, this was a dangerous trek for these women to make to the tomb of, uh, of Jesus. Um, yeah, but these, uh, these three women in this moment, they're the ones who show the greatest devotion to Jesus. Notice it's not any one of the 12 disciples who's making their way out to Jesus' tomb. Rather, it's these three women who are making their way to, uh, to Jesus' tomb. So, they're walking along the road They have likely gone to a huge amount of effort to get this oil ready. They would have um, spent a huge amount of money in doing this, but they have left out one important detail. How are they going to move the stone? (laughs) This tomb was owned by someone called called Joseph of Arimathea, who was a very wealthy man, and along with a huge amount of wealth, meant the best tombs that Israel had to offer. And the tombs at that time, the best tombs, would have had a stone that would have been rolled across that would have taken two very, very strong men to be able to move. And then following the uh, the stone being moved into place and blocking the tomb, there was another process 
process of sealing the stone so that it wouldn't be able to be moved. And so the women are suddenly faced with this issue when they arrive at the tomb. What, what are we going to do? How are we going to move it so we can place these oils on Jesus? But when they looked up from verse 4, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. It says alarmed here, but the word is far more like afraid or terrified or trembling. Continues in verse 6, don't be alarmed, he said, don't be afraid, don't be terrified, don't be trembling. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified, but he has risen. He is not here See the place where they laid him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Just want to pause for one more second. Notice that right here, this separates Peter from the rest of the disciples. A few chapters before, in chapter 14, we see Peter has denied Jesus three times and he is embarrassed and ashamed and full of regrets. He doesn't feel like he's lived up to be uh, into his calling of being a disciple, particularly a, uh, a disciple of Jesus. More on that a little bit, a little bit later. From verse 8, the end. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, as we read through this gospel account, particularly the last verse, we're left with some difficulties surrounding the resurrection of Jesus. In the last verse, we're told that they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Can anyone see the difficulty with that? Anyone can actually shout it out. If you, that wasn't a rhetorical question. Um, can anyone see an issue with that last verse? They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Disbelief, yep. Yep. I'll just tell you. <laughs> the reason that this is an issue or a difficulty for us is because all the other gospel accounts say that they went out quickly and told different people about what they had seen. And here we see that it's, they said nothing to anyone. They, in the other gospel accounts, wanted to tell everyone that Jesus was risen, but here it says that they told no one. Now, this places us as Jesus followers in a tricky situation, particularly when it comes to people who are skeptics of the Christian faith. We're in a little bit of a no-win situation here when it comes to consistency between gospel accounts. If the resurrection accounts, if they matched perfectly then sceptics will claim that the writers of the Gospels conspired together and spoke together. However, if the resurrection accounts differ from one another on anything, sceptics will claim that the Gospels contradict one another. And some people have used the argument that this passage here, that this verse, is a contradiction which makes the whole resurrection of Jesus invalid. So what do we do when we face these kinds of differences that we see between gospel accounts? 
About a year ago, there was a lady who came to me with uh, an issue that, uh, that, uh, that they were facing. Um, they were dealing with, uh, with an issue with another, uh, another female in their own family where there was some relational tension and they just wanted to talk through this issue with me. Now, at the end of our time together, this person asked me if it would be okay if I could keep this discussion to ourselves. And I said, of course, yes, that would be fine. At the dinner table that night, a little bit later on, I was uh, talking to my wife and we were just going through what our day had looked like. Um, And I brought up this discussion. I spoke to Sarah and wanted some thoughts on whether she thought what I said was helpful. I was trying to deal with a relational tension between two ladies and I wasn't sure if I actually did a good job of, uh, of doing that. Now, later on that night, I remembered that I wasn't supposed to tell anyone about this discussion that I had had, um, and I had told my wife. And so next time I saw this person, I mentioned to them that I had told my wife. And their response was, look, when I told you to keep it to yourself, I didn't mean keep it from Sarah. There was an understanding that we had that although she had said, don't tell anyone, my wife, was, it was, she assumed, would be told. Now, when we get to places like this in Scripture, often verses like this that are different to other gospel accounts can be dissected and picked apart in a way that we wouldn't do at any other place uh, in our lives. Now, when it says they walked away and told no one, what it's likely saying here is that as they were leaving, they didn't rush about telling every single person that they saw and came into contact with. They didn't go around shouting the good news of the resurrection, not at this point at least. Rather, they held on to this news and went until uh, uh, until they had told the disciples. It's not a case that they never, ever, ever told anyone. Now, when we come to the four gospel accounts and read the resurrection of Jesus, we are reading four people's, four different people's recollections of what had happened, which means there will naturally be different details included. So, do they match up consistently? Well, no, they don't, because they're written by different people. But do they contradict one another? Again, no. Let's think about this in a, uh, in a different way. Um, let's assume, I didn't actually do this this morning, but let's assume that this morning I drove to church with my, uh, with my wife and, and son. And so I could tell you that narrative in this way. This morning, I hopped in my car and I came to church. That focus of what I just said is on how I came and where I came to. Or I could say it to you, this morning I came to church with my wife. The focus there is on who I came with. Or I could say, this morning I had a conversation with my wife about today as we were travelling. And the focus here is on who I came with and what we spoke about. So none of these are conflicting accounts, and yet they're all different based on the focus of what I'm trying to say. So to ignore the resurrection based on differing accounts from different people is something that doesn't hold up, particularly when they don't contradict one another. But probably the harder difficulty I see when we come to Mark chapter, uh, Mark chapter 16 is this little section that you see after verse 8. 
If you've got your Bibles open or your Bible app open, you'll see this little phrase after verse 8, which says, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 to 20. And then the following verses from 9 to 20 are all in italics, implying it's not the same as the rest of Mark. Now, there has been a tremendous, a huge amount of research done on Mark verses 9 to 20. Um, And it is, as you can see, um, the earliest manuscripts don't include these verses. So there's a few questions that we have to ask when we get to these few verses of this particular gospel account. The first thing that we need to understand is it's very unlikely that these verses were written by Mark or the Mark who, read, who, wrote the rest of, uh, who wrote the rest of this gospel account. As you can read in your Bible, it says the earliest manuscripts don't include these. It's highly likely um, instead that these verses were written by someone who came after Mark and thought the story was not quite finished at verse 8 and added in an ending that they thought might be helpful. Um, Apart from these verses not being in the earliest manuscripts, the language and the tone of what is spoken about here and the themes are very different to uh, to the rest of Mark's Gospel. In verses 9 to 20, if you do have your Bibles open, there's nothing in the rest of Mark's Gospel about holding and playing around with snakes. Um, And the contrast here in verses 8 to 9 um, also is is such a change in language that it's very unlikely that it was written by Mark. It's almost like... Um, if we were comparing it in, uh, in modern terms, if we saw Ed Sheeran coming out with a heavy metal album, that would give you a real shock to the system and you would think, that's not right, that shouldn't be the case, that doesn't seem consistent, and that's the kind of shock that it's like when you go from verses 8 to, uh, eight to 9. It's generally believed by, uh, by scholars um, that the reason that this unknown writer who, uh, who is different to... Uh, to Mark chose to add something in at the end is because it was likely that Mark's gospel didn't finish at verse 8, rather it did continue. And so this writer chose to put some pieces together of what they thought it could have looked like. It's thought, generally speaking, that Mark's original ending from verse 9 onwards was lost, and so some author chose to put some verses together of what he thought uh, this could have looked like. And so what do we do with these verses? What do we do with something like this from verses 9 to 20? Do we keep them or do we throw them away? Now, although these verses, they likely weren't written by Mark, it doesn't mean that we should just throw them in the bin. I wouldn't give these verses the same weight as the rest of the Bible, but that doesn't mean that these verses aren't biblical, Whoever wrote these verses probably knew that verse 8 wasn't the end of the Gospel of Mark. And so what this person is trying to do is pull bits from the rest of Scripture to try and paint a picture of what they thought the end of Mark's Gospel might have looked like. So everything, almost everything from verses 9 to 20, they are quotes or references to other places in the Bible. 
Verse 9 is taken from Luke 8, 1 to 3. Verse 10 is taken from John 20, verse 18. Verses 12 to 14, taken from Luke 24, 13 to 19. And on and on it goes. Verse 18 in particular, where it does talk about snakes, it's likely that this is referencing Paul, who when he landed at Malta, uh, he was bitten by a viper and he shook it off without effect. Um, what that's not saying there in verse 18 is to drag in a whole heap of snakes uh, into our worship service. I personally have a phobia or a fear of snakes, um, and so I won't be here if any of you uh, choose to, uh, to take that too literally. So although these verses almost definitely weren't written by Mark, the writer of these uh, few verses drew from other biblical material to try and paint a picture of how he thought uh, Mark might have finished. Now, a lot of what I just shared, these uh, difficulties, um, there was a lot of information that, uh, that scholars uh, talked through. And so what might be helpful for you is if you want uh, to understand this a little bit more, there's some handouts that I've left on the welcome desk on both of these two difficulties, uh, a possible chronology of the death, uh, resurrection and ascension of Jesus with all uh, the biblical references and also uh, the different passages of where Mark 6... Uh, 16, 9 to 20 are likely drawn from, or if you would like an online version, you can scan there on the screen to see. So for those of you who are real uh, biblical nerds, um, you can get that stuff. That's a, uh, something that you can use to, uh, to be helpful. These are the questions that people can face when they come to um, Scripture, particularly in our Western culture. In our Western culture, the way that we often think about things we can tend to get pretty stuck in some of these things and we can want things to work together systematically because that's how we think in Western culture. But whilst we try and do this and we do need to wrestle with some of these difficulties, we can lose sight of what the writers are really trying to say and the culture that they are writing into. The writers weren't writing the uh, to the information age that we live in today where we can access anything at the touch of a screen, they were writing to everyday regular people who were finding it difficult just to survive. So the point of the ending of Mark is not that we should get bogged down in answering detailed questions, although these questions are important and they do have to be answered, rather the point of the gospel accounts and all the gospel accounts is to take the big picture view and consider the one major event taking place and who is involved and the major event here is the resurrection of Jesus of Christ this is not just the major event of this passage but this is the major event of all history all creation had been waiting for this moment to take place, for Jesus to rise again from the dead and to conquer sin and death. This is the moment of all history, the moment when Jesus rose again from the dead, which led to the greatest movement in all of history. It's why we are sitting here today. This moment of Jesus' resurrection, it changed everything in history. And yet we are faced, when we come to this gospel account, of one final difficulty that I find strange when I read through these verses, from verses 1 to 8. 
there's someone missing from this resurrection account. Who's that? Jesus. He's not there from verses 1 to 8. And it's his resurrection. Jesus isn't there at the end of the gospel account. Now, there might have been some more of Mark's writings after verse 8, but even if there is, Jesus isn't the main person in this scene of the resurrection. If there was a movie being made of particularly Mark's gospel account, there's no Jesus here in this moment. Now, I think part of the reason that Jesus isn't prominent here is because Mark is choosing to lift up and acknowledge the other major people in this moment. The people who should have been the first at Jesus' tomb should have been his 12 disciples, his, or, I'm sorry, at this point, now 11, um, closest friends that he journeyed with. But they are not the first at the tomb. Rather, it's the women who arrive at the tomb first. Now, if you know anything about Jewish culture, you would know that this was a very patriarchal society. Women were not celebrated or acknowledged or recognised as significant within that society. But here, in the most significant events in all history, it's the people who are the unexpected ones who are lifted up, who are acknowledged, who are celebrated. And this is the theme throughout all of Mark's Gospel. We see people who society pushes aside being lifted up. It's Jesus who calls fishermen to follow him, not the academics of the day. It's Jesus who healed the people that society casted out. It's Jesus who sovereignly decided that his closest female friends, who society didn't celebrate and would have held the least credibility in that day, they would be celebrated for all eternity at the most significant event in all history because they were present there at the, uh, at the resurrection. The whole Gospel of Mark, it chooses to lift up those that society pushes aside. Earlier on this week, I was having uh, dinner with mine and Sarah's uh, parents and I was reflecting on a particular moment when I was in high school. When I was in grade 12, I had a few uh, really good mates, but there was one guy in particular uh, called Josh, who I was really good friends with. Josh, unfortunately, he tended to get in trouble a lot, uh, but not for the reasons you would always expect from a high schooler. Josh had a strong sense of justice, and so if there were teachers that he thought were being unfair, or students that he thought were being mean to other students, he would take it upon himself to intervene into that uh, situation. This didn't always work out very well for Josh, as you could imagine, and in particular, there was one occasion when we were in grade 12, and we saw a group of grade eights uh, taking another boy's hat and throwing it to one another so that this boy couldn't get his hat back. This boy who had his hat taken off him, he had uh, fairly severe autism, and so this was really distressing for him to have his hat taken off like this. Now, I knew this boy who had his hat taken off him a little bit, and so uh, what I thought I would do is I thought I would do something about this. 
And what I chose to do about it was get my friend Josh to do something about it. Josh was quite a muscular teenager, and what he ended up doing is he chased the other boys around uh, who had taken this boy's hat, and he was pushing some over, um, but he did make sure that this boy got his hat back. It turns out that Josh got in trouble for this. I got in trouble by association, by association for this. Um, because he did leave about three grade eight boys, who were the, were the ones being the bullies, on the ground crying. Now, I'm not celebrating Josh's actions or anything like that, but I think there is something within every single one of us, particularly those of us who are followers of Jesus, that inside we're built for justice, particularly if you're a Christian. There's something within you that seeks to advocate for those who can't advocate for themselves. Part of the reason that we, see, that we feel like this is because of what we see of Jesus in the Gospels. In this Gospel account that we have been reading through, we constantly see Jesus lifting up and celebrating and advocating for those who no one else can, uh, can do, uh, do for the ones that society pushes to the, side, uh, to the side. And because of this example that we see of Jesus, this is something that we seek to, to emulate. Now, all of us, if you are a follower of Christ, you do have a responsibility to help those that society pushes aside. We should love, support, care for, and help those that are most vulnerable within society. And so here we see the women lifted up, but there's also one other main person who is acknowledged here in this resurrection account who is also lifted up. And that person is Peter. In verses 6 to 7, it says, Don't be alarmed, he said, this is the angel. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter... Right here, Peter's getting singled out. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So Peter, for some reason, is being singled out as separate or different to, to the rest of the disciples. Now, I don't think um, Peter is being singled out here because he is now no longer a disciple because of his denial of Jesus. But rather, I think what the angel is seeking to do here is trying to tell Peter, uh, trying to tell the, the women, sorry, it's really important that you let Peter know, even more than all of the other disciples, let Peter know Jesus is alive. He's resurrected. In this moment, Peter would have been devastated, weeping, mourning for his closest friend, because he denied Jesus, but also because Jesus had been crucified and was in the grave. Now, it was important to let all of the disciples know that Jesus was alive, but particularly Peter, he needed to know that Jesus was now risen. The impact of the resurrection news would have moved Peter in a way that we probably can't understand that would have been so beautiful for him to experience. And this is what the resurrection of Jesus does. It lifts up people whose society has pushed aside 
But it also lifts up people like Peter. It lifts us up when we feel pushed aside. On Monday mornings, quick plug, we have our prayer meetings here at our 6.30, which you're free to join us for. And usually after our 6.30 uh, prayer meeting in the mornings, um, afterwards I usually like to have some intentional time by myself with God. And about two months ago, I was having this time and I sensed God saying to me, Dave, you have to be more careful with some of the things that you say. And I thought, what are you saying, God? I don't go around swearing at people. I don't insult people. Well, not to their face anyway. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> I don't. And I sense God saying to me, Dave, you're not careful with your words. You speak without thinking and sometimes you can say things that can be critical or unhelpful or gossipy and try to just talk less. There's actually a huge amount, can I just say, in the New Testament about shutting up and not talking very much. Now, how's that gone for me after those couple of months? <laughs> Pretty poorly, to be honest. I've been more aware of my words and the things I've been saying, but I've actually found that quite hard as a thing to, uh, to put into to place, to be more silent with my, with my words. And if I'm honest, after moments, um, I've been aware that I have not been following what God had said to me in that moment and what I've done, and I've felt annoyed and frustrated with myself that I haven't been doing what God uh, wanted me to do. And then this week, I read this moment of Peter being lifted out of the guilt and shame he experienced because of his words. That was his sin. His sin in denying Jesus was his words. And in this moment, he is singled out by saying, Peter, of all people, he needs to know that Jesus is risen. He needs to know that Jesus is alive. He is the one who needs to be lifted up. He needs to be rescued from his guilt and shame. He needs to have his spirits lifted. And when I read Peter being lifted up, I felt my own soul experience the freedom from guilt and shame that the resurrection offers us. Now, this doesn't mean that my words are magically fixed. It doesn't mean that I didn't experience... Um, but what it did mean, sorry, is that I didn't experience guilt and shame attached to them anymore. Rather, what I was able to do was look to the resurrection of Jesus and be lifted up by what Jesus does for us. So this morning, what we're going to do is we are going to celebrate the resurrection. We're going to celebrate the risen Jesus. So if the team wants to come up, and I just want to um, encourage you, if you have been feeling any sense of guilt or shame in your life about anything, might be uh, sin in your, in your life. The resurrection of Jesus is able to lift us up. It releases us from this and gives us the life, freedom and hope that is on offer for us. So let's pray together. Actually, can you stand as we, as we pray? Lord, as we...
As we see in the resurrection account, we see you lifting up people who society pushed aside, and we do want to be people who advocate for the least of these. We want to be a people who does this because we know that's what you did here on this earth, King Jesus. And so when we are faced with situations throughout even this week where we could turn a blind eye or where we could speak on behalf of of those people that are pushed aside, God, give us the courage and the boldness to be able to do what you, Jesus, did here on this earth. But also right now, Lord, for anyone who is feeling down, who is feeling pushed aside or pushed down, either by society or pushed down by the sin in their own life, would you remind them, King Jesus, that you lift them up? You help us to soar on wings like eagles because of what you have done for us through your resurrection power. For anyone in particular, God, who is feeling a sense of guilt and shame because of sin in their life, Lord, I do ask that you will help them understand that, yes, there is conviction under your name, but there is also freedom and hope through the name of Jesus because of your resurrection power. Lord, we do want to be people who are transformed by, by you. We do want to be people who are careful and don't become apathetic towards sin in our lives. But also, God, we don't want to be held back by guilt and shame in our life anymore. And so help us to celebrate in this moment right now your resurrection. We praise you, King Jesus, because you are risen, because you are almighty, because you are powerful, and because you're at work in our world today and in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen.